from KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach. Coming up on today's show, a fight between private landowners and hunters is coming to a head in Wyoming. It's a lens on a much larger social change occurring around the West. Plus, we visit a food bank in Moab, Utah, as grocery prices hit all-time highs. There was a lady who came in and she said, uh, I can't afford groceries, but what you're doing is helping us out. And now I'm able to be able to let my kids participate in sports activities. But first, we go to the Jackson Hole Airport where local families are saying goodbye to their grandparents, who are headed back to Tlaxcala, the Mexican state where most Latinos in Jackson have roots. Many of the families here have been unable to see their relatives for years. But now, the government in Tlaxcala is opening an office in Jackson to reunite families across borders and offer immigration resources. We talked to some of those families. On an early December afternoon, grandkids, parents, and grandparents are huddled together in the waiting area near a Christmas tree in the Jackson Hole Airport. They are just outside of the security line, taking the last few minutes to spend time together before some of them board. One woman, who has black hair and wears a pink shirt, is Rosa Preciado. She's lived and worked in Jackson Hole for 18 years. She's sending off her parents, who are going back to their home in Tlaxcala, Mexico. KHOL's Emily Cohen translates. My parents could be with my children. They could be with my nieces and nephews, with my sisters. We really enjoyed it. Like much of the area's Latino population, Preciado immigrated from the Mexican state of Tlaxcala, and she's unable to return to her home country and see her family because of her documentation status. But. Her parents were able to come visit her thanks to a new program through the government from Tlaxcala, which helps Mexican elders visit their families in Jackson. The government helped make it possible for them to come, made it easier for them to be here. The program is part of a larger initiative from the state of Tlaxcala and its immigrant assistance office. The goal is to provide resources to Mexican nationals living in the United States and bridge gaps between generations. The agency does this in part by running reunification programs and paying half of all travel costs for visits up to 30 days. The director of the Immigrant Assistance Office is Paula Zabalsa. We want them to feel close to their land, to their homeland, and to have the support of the Tlaxcalan government The group opened its first U.S. office in New York earlier this year. Other Mexican states have programs like this, but the New York office was a first for Tlaxcala. Zabalsa says the agency started in New York because it has the largest population of Tlaxcaltecans at about 2,500 people. The small mountain town of Jackson has 1,500 people from Tlaxcala, just a thousand less than New York. That's the second largest Tlaxcaltecan population in the U.S., Zabalsa says that's why, as early as February, Jackson will be home to the next Immigrant Resource Center, which will also offer Tlaxcaltecans help with documents such as passports and visas. 
You have to do a lot of things to get a legal document from Mexico, and sometimes it's impossible. That's Alex Perez, who was also sending his parents off at the airport alongside his teenage daughter. He says the new office will give immigrants like him more resources compared to when he came to Jackson 16 years ago. So if they open that office with those kind of programs, it's going to be more easy for us to live here eventually. Many immigrants can't travel back to Mexico to get documents such as birth certificates, since they may not be let back into the U.S. The Jackson office will help them get birth certificates and other documents critical for immigration. People such as Perez have been coming to Jackson from Tlaxcala since at least the 1990s, when word spread in small Mexican towns of the job opportunities in Wyoming. The two places have a lot in common. They both have snow-covered peaks, a cowboy culture, and a small population. People know each other in those little towns where I came from. So people who are usually live here first, they go back and they tell people there's opportunities here, and they end up bringing a lot of people to this side. According to local counts, Latinos as a whole make up up to 30% of the town's population and are the backbone of the town's labor force. Perez works as a carpenter and now has a family of his own here. Probably as my case, like many, we end up living here for many years. That wasn't my main plan, <laughs> but I'm here now for about 16 years. For 10 of those years, Perez was unable to see his family in Mexico because of travel costs. This visit was only his teenage daughter's third time meeting her grandparents. Christina Sanchez is helping her dad prepare to board. She left Tlaxcala 27 years ago, and while her dad has been able to come see her, she says others aren't as lucky. She's happy that future generations may be able to have closer connections with their family in Tlaxcala. I hope they continue to give these opportunities. It's a very beautiful experience, and it's something that the families enjoy. And, well, hopefully other families will have this opportunity. These five elders were the first group to come to Jackson from Tlaxcala through this program. But more are awaiting visas for trips next year. With the opening of the new Immigrant Resource Center as early as February, more reunification programs are on the horizon. Next up, a fight between private landowners and hunters in Wyoming is headed to federal court. This is just the latest in a simmering conflict in the West over what constitutes public land and who should have access to it. Ben Ryder Howe covered the story for the New York Times. He takes us to the heart of the battle over Elk Mountain, just an hour outside of Laramie. So El Elk Mountain really sticks out in, in Southern Wyoming. And a lot of people I talked to said that they had been obsessed with it their whole lives. The, the mountain is uh, mostly owned by one, one person uh, who bought it about 20 years ago. Um, and um, it's known for having uh, great hunting. Uh, so this, this obsession has, has led um, some people to look for ways to access some of the hunting there on um, the public land. 
because parts of the mountain are public um, and are owned by the state of Wyoming. Parts of it are our Bureau of Land Management. And um, for years, there have been a number of hunters who tried to uh, figure out a way to access the public land that is trapped inside of the private land on Elk Mountain. And that's how this case came about. Right. And you kind of get into this phenomenon of corner crossing. Would you tell us what that is and how that played into this case? So if you picture the checkerboard um, uh, of, of property ownership on the landscape throughout the, the West, you know, it goes public, private, public, private for the most part. And this creates this pattern where it, uh, you have um, public and private meeting in, in a, basically in a corner, like a, like a, just on a checkerboard. And some hunters uh, believe that it is uh, a legal way of accessing the public land to hop over the public uh, from, from one public square to another. The, the, the rules vary by state, at least in Wyoming. It is a, a, a gray area. It has not been um, well-defined up until now. And um, there have been uh, previous cases um, attempting to uh, figure out whether an everyday citizen is able to do that hop from the public to the public, which uh, the people who are against corner crossings say involves violating the airspace of the the, the 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 landowner or landowners who own the adjacent pieces of private land. So this has been a controversy for a long time and it has um, resulted in this in this case going now to federal court. there there, there are some who think that it may uh, ultimately set a precedent for, not just Wyoming, but um, uh, other other states where you have that checkerboard pattern of land ownership. Right. And like you say, this has been a controversy for a long time, but your article talks about what added to this controversy is there's this new technology that shows people where the private land stops and where the public land starts. Can you tell us more about how this new technology aided in this conflict? There are um, a number of apps that are used by uh, hunters and, and other outdoor recreators to figure out where they are on the landscape. And it's they're similar to Google Maps. The, the pioneer in, for these apps is called Onyx um, and is uh, used, as far as I can tell, by almost every hunter or either Onyx or one of its competitors. Basically, what this app does is it gives you the ability to see where you are on the landscape in relation to private and public land, which is valuable for a hunter because a hunter doesn't want to trespass. A hunter may be um, pursuing a game that is uh, going back and forth from public to private land, and uh, the hunter may, may not have permission to go on the private land. The hunters may have guns that would complicate a situation if they were on land on which they were unwelcome. So these apps um, have given them the confidence to go places where in the past it would have required a, a more work than I think most hunters were willing to put in to figure out the local patterns of land ownership. It's it's just made it easy for them to be more confident as they, as they travel around. And this is... Um, also encouraging them to go places where um, they maybe are making the local landowners uncomfortable uh, or where the landowners just haven't been used to seeing people before. 
And it's also made it much easier for the hunters to corner cross because they can usually find a way to be pretty precise about corner crossing. And that is what is has been uh, triggering some of the conflict that led to this situation on Elk Mountain. Right. And I know you live in New York, but you frequently cover the American West. What drove you to report this story in particular? Like, why why was this so important for you to report on? So this story, to me, fits into an overall pattern of changes occurring in the West where you have land that is falling out of um, the ownership of uh, families and uh, family farms or ranches and uh, is often being bought by um individuals who are newcomers to the area or who um, you know might be corporations that are uh, setting up uh, hospitality operations this is uh, this is creating s- some uh, degree of social tension uh, really across the west and, um, and and it's also creating economic opportunity uh, I should I should add and has become in you know the the, the as one of the people I, I talked to for this article said the economic lifeblood of the area. So it's a it's a huge story, and that's you know the main reason why I, I was attracted to the story is it just it was a, it's a lens on a much larger social change occurring around um, the, the West. So what should we watch out for moving forward? What's next for this federal case? So my understanding is that this case is going to take several more months to resolve um, as it moves through federal court. And uh, I think the thing to watch for really is to see, you know, what kind of public reaction there is. Wyoming has an immense amount of public land compared to other states. And, uh, you know, one, one thing that I realized very quickly is how passionate they are about it. The big takeaway for me in reporting this story was that the conflict how deeply it is felt by people, not not just regardless of their politics, but that people who who feel very, very strongly about public land and people who feel very, very strongly about hunting and about private property can feel very divided about this case. and 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 as they almost like there's they're they're really not sure where where they stand on it because it 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 is it is a to some degree and I guess an an unsolvable conflict for them which is one of the reasons I was so attracted to the story because it, you know there's shows that there's a you know a real tension here over something of you know of real relevance to everyday citizens. Totally. Well, we will watch out for what happens next. Ben, thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me on. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach, and this is our podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop most Fridays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next... Inflation in the U.S. reached a 40-year high in 2022, affecting consumer products like gas and groceries. Food banks across the country report a growing demand for food-related assistance. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Molly Marcello from KZMU reports on one pantry serving the Moab community in southeast Utah.
About 20 cars are queued up outside St. Francis Episcopal Church on King Creek Boulevard. It's a Friday afternoon, and each vehicle moves steadily to the front of the church, where volunteers are buzzing around. And right now, Kenyon is getting how many people they're picking up for, and then it goes to uh, our priest, Father Dave, and he's putting grocery bags of food in the back seat or in the back end of the pickup. That's Phil Irby, who was working this line until I asked him to describe how this weekly food pantry operation works. The church just got more supplies from the Utah Food Bank, so the bags today are pretty full. Uh, Today we have pork roasts and eggs and potatoes and apples and uh, dishwasher detergent, croissants that are frozen and have to be cooked. It's just whatever we can whatever comes around. St. Francis has run this pantry for over three years now, and Irby says they serve between 800 to 1,000 people a month. The food is meant to help supplement a week's worth of supplies, free up some finances so locals can use it for other needs, like more groceries, rent, or other things. There was a lady who came in and she said, uh, I can't afford groceries, but what you're doing is helping us out, and now I'm able to be able to let my kids participate in sports activities so I can pay the fees so that they can do sports. Dave Sackerson, the priest in charge at St. Francis. People will still know him as Mayor Dave, a position he served in for, as he says, 16 glorious years. But even before his mayoral tenure, Sackerson started out in the grocery business. I know what things cost and everything else, and I can't believe how much food is right now. According to the Consumer Price Index, basics like eggs, potatoes, fruit, and veggies have risen well over 10% since last year. Jeanette Bott is the CEO of Utah Food Bank. She told the Public News Service this fall that people are turning to food pantries for the first time in their lives. Now we're seeing people that are coming to us for need for food who, one, have never asked before, two, have jobs and are pretty stable. And three, the inflation now is the issue that seems to be impacting those families they've never had to help before. The Utah Food Bank drops supplies to St. Francis every month. Last year, that amounted to 100,000 pounds of food for the pantry. But it's still not enough to run the program week to week. I've got 75 pounds of hamburger in the back of my truck right now that I just bought today. Sackerson says they do receive help beyond the Utah Food Bank. They get donations and volunteers from other local faith groups and community organizations. And there's always the oddball giver out there. It really touches my heart. I mean, some guy walked in here yesterday, slapped a bunch of money in my hand. He says, put it to good use. And I've never seen the guy before in my life. I mean, it's just absolutely phenomenal. I, I just think people, people see a need. People see a need. And uh, hopefully we're filling some of that need. Well... We're a community of 5,000, and we're putting food out for 1,000 people a month. Phil Irby again. As we speak, the line of cars has thinned out a bit. The big first-hour rush is over, but people are still queuing up to grab food bags. This is, this is a community that has lots and lots of service jobs, cleaning bathrooms and changing sheets and in the back cooking hamburgers and all of that kind of stuff. We're going into the winter when people are getting laid off or getting a half time. So yeah, there's there's ongoing need for this.
The food pantry at the Episcopal Church of St. Francis is open every Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. No questions asked. People can walk, bike, or drive up. If you're hungry, they say, just come. For KZMU News, I'm Molly Marcello. Jake Dullin is a singer and songwriter who frequently uses Jackson Hole as a home base. He recorded his latest release, Young Frau, with other local musicians in a yurt in Victor, Idaho. The album marks a shift for Dullin as he recorded his previous album, Solo. Dullin joined music director Jack Catlin in the K-12 studios in celebration of the new album. Jake Dullin joins us now in the KHOL studio. Hello. <laughs> What's up, Jake? Uh, nothing much, man. Thanks for having me on. Uh, hello to everyone out there listening. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna kick things off. Jump right into a performance. What song do you have for us to start us off? I'm gonna start with a song called Pseudopod Burst. It's the third track on the new record. It might sound a little different than what's on the record, but maybe we can talk about that a little bit afterwards. Cool. All right, Jake Dullin, Pseudopod Burst, right here on KHOL. Pseudopod Burst, looking to disperse, not stay safe. Distracted by gold in his purse, you can get hurt, I would just say, hey. Pseudopod burst Not to rehearse The end of my days I sat upon Dead father's corpse Out on the porch I'm going insane Weigh my heart Weigh my heart What's it weigh? On the pseudopod burst If you're looking to get there first I hope you don't get hurt Avoid the group disaster <laughs> Alright, alright, alright Jake Dolan in the studio with us here on KHOL Your last release, the Rubble EP Was the first to feature If I, Correct me if I'm wrong But the first to feature yeah. additional musicians Especially on the no, that's standout right. track Grunge Gods Yeah, that's it's true So this time around on Young Frau as you, as you mentioned, you employed the services Of local musicians and good friends of KHOL I definitely should mention Drummer Peter Henderson and bassist Pearson Beasley From the band Strumbucket Can you tell us about the concept of the record And how it came to be? It wasn't really a concept. I approached everything from a writing standpoint. So there was all these songs I was working on and I just knew I wanted to play with other musicians. Once I wrote the first couple of songs and I knew I was like, all right, well, this is happening again. Let me find the guys that, you know, I really actually want to. And that actually took months. You know, you can't like force stuff like that. You got to like, you know, see who people are and if they're yep. interested, you know, yeah, they like, fit. it's not like, it's not like I was like, all right. Um, and how did you know that you wanted 
you definitively wanted to have other musicians with you? Like I've kind of just been living my own little dream for the last four or five years. And I'll start by saying it's been really rewarding personally and creatively, but it's, it's the other things start lacking, you know, yeah. it's always been what I've wanted to do okay. ever since. Like, actually you mentioned grunge gods, like that song on the last record talks about, you know, going over a bridge, listening to 101 alternative, mm-hmm. which is actually a, a station in Maryland that we used to listen to. Like that's when, when grunge was, you mm-hmm. know, kind of blowing up in the, in the late nineties, I was like just a kid, but, um, like, that's what I want to do. That's mm-hmm. why I want to play in a band and I want it to be freaking sick. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I, I just kind of took a long way to get there. Also, I was, yeah, I'm like, I don't want to play solo forever, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I'm just like out there, like one person. Mm-hmm. You're like, all right, well, this would be a lot funner with other people. <laughs> so how did um, the, um, you said it's like a, you're following basically a songwriting trail where the songs are leading you to the yeah. final bulk Yeah, it of, always has been work. about writing for me when I started, mm-hmm. you know, being really influenced by Dylan and stuff. It's like, if you can write your own songs and perform them, like that's the best. That's really excites me, you know, to be the writer and the, and the performer. Most of your work, a lot of your work is the the road, and I love the track on the new album, People Drifting. Oh, yeah. It's kind of, to me, it's like classic Jake Dullin. Can you tell us, you know, what the songwriting process was for that one? Yeah, that's like the other side of it. You know, when I'm having, when I'm doing this interview and you're asking these questions, there's kind of like a subtext that... I'm like successful musician or something and like creatively I am <laughs> but yeah. viably feasibly like fiscally I'm like not it's a sad state of affairs on that side of things as far as like a musician that wants to go about it the way I'm going about it which is like the long hard road or something like that there's only so many things you can actually do to like gain some type of exposure or something and so reflecting on that that's what people be drifting is it's that feeling when i'm done the tour that that song probably came when i was done the tour last summer after rubble and i'm like chilling in this could have been when i was chilling with Hayes in this campsite and it's like all right i'm basically broke again and i'm in my car it's yeah. like you know what is this you know that's mm-hmm. so that's basically what people be drifting is it's all in the song you know yeah and we were talking before we hopped on that you know it's a fine balance between creative reward and realistic financial capabilities of being able to do this for a living. It's like something I've ignored basically, but you get to a point, like, I guess I don't want to share specifics, but you get to a point like, you know, you're a certain age and you want some type of cushion Mm -hmm. financially to be able to like, not, you know, if if a paycheck's late or something, you don't want to have to be asking for like a Mm -hmm. couple hundred extra dollars to like fly, you know, Mm -hmm. somewhere. It's just, you know, it's yeah. sad, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and like... But the other side of it yeah. is you're creating this really great work that you're super proud of. Yeah, yeah. But so it's, it's like just a, a double-edged yeah. sword. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so many ways. Oh, yeah. You can hear music from Jake Dillon right here on Kitchwell during our local music hour that airs weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Make sure to visit 891kitchwell.org for more music news and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL... Jackson. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Hannah Mersbach, and this is KHOL Jackson.